I'm Captain Kirk. Fascinating. I'm a doctor, not a mechanic. Thank you, thank you. Love you. Most illogical. I saw. Well, that was different. Yep, rousy, but different. Places, please. And here we go. Welcome, ladies, gentlemen, bears, Cardassians, and things to episode 51 of the Muppet Trek podcast. I'm Steve. And I'm Jarman, and we're here to compare, contrast, and confer about our two favorite franchises. And what are those, Steve? That's the Muppets and Star Trek. We've been doing one-to-one reviews of the Muppet Show and Star Trek, the original series. And tonight we're covering the Muppet Show with special guest star Leo Sayer and Star Trek original episode Patterns of Force. I didn't know if it was pronounced Sayer, but then immediately Scooter just knocks it out there and says Sayer. So there we go. Yeah, there you go. Knocked it out. Thanks, Scooter. That's what he's there for at the beginning of every episode. This is how you say the the guest name. Yeah, in case you don't know. Nureyev. Nureyev. <laughs> oh, Nureyev. Oh, oh, got it. Right. So who is this Leo Sayer guy, Steve? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> UK listeners may know him. He's a big name in the UK, singer, songwriter, known for big hits, three of which he performs on this in this episode. But he's Australian, though. I mean, but he charted in the UK. Oh, cool. I got gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, you make me feel like dancing. The show must go on. And when I need you all performed here, his music's been used in tons of TV shows and movies, including the handmaid's tale fringe and Charlie's angels. But our audience probably doesn't know him from anything really, as most of his contemporary work, uh, stopped a long time ago or his crazy hair. Yes, he still has the crazy hair. He still does apparently perform in the UK from time to time. Good for him. I'm proud of him. Well, this week on The Muppet Show, uh, Kermit introduces Leo Sayers and says he is glad that they finally have a good, some good rock on and a rock takes offense. <laughs> we then open with You Make Me Feel Like Dancing, where Leo Sayers performs with birds of all shapes and sizes. A new lady pig performer, Annie Sue, comes out and does a tap dance number while singing Carbon Paper. Even though Paul Wright pointed out she came, she was in the last episode that we watched. So, yeah, there you go. Uh, Piggy then tries to up the ante, performing a poem, Daffodils, in front of uh, Rolf accompanying on piano and some daffodils. But unfortunately, they're both allergic. <laughs> After this, we get Leo Say- Sayers, who performs another one of his songs, The Show Must Go On, with a weird mime performance that is clearly something Leo wanted to do. It was interesting. Afterwards, we get Gonza performing. Uh, she was one of the early birds. Another bird-related musical number where he sings to a canary before being attacked by a whole bunch of birds at the end. <laughs> Fozzie comes out to do his act, and he brings his new assistant, Annie Sue. Fozzie does a memory act but can't remember anything. It's, it's one of the better moments of the episode. <laughs> After this, we get Leo in a tree singing when I need you only to reveal that a bear and a woodpecker and a woodchuck and a fox are trying to get him down out of this tree. And at the end, the tree falls over as he finishes the song. Cause blown up uh, backstage this week. Piggy is jealous of the new lady performer and vies for Kermit's Kermit's attention as well as the audiences. Piggy is Annie Sue's idol, which doesn't make it any more easy for her as Annie Sue lavishes her with, uh, with love. This only gets worse when Piggy sees Kermit kiss Annie Sue on the cheek. And then she physically assaults her employer. As usual. Kermit thanks Leo Sayers one last time. Leo swoons over Annie Sue in front of Piggy. Piggy pushes her off stage. And that is what we call the Muppet Show. Woohoo. Jarman, what did you think of this week's episode of the Muppet Show with guest star Leo Sayers? 
So I'm getting from your tone that you might not have been a huge fan of this episode. I could yeah. be wrong, but uh, up and I, down. I thought this guy was very unique. I never heard him before or heard of him. Um, and I think you even texted me when you were watching it, something about him having a crazy voice that was just like kind of like a metal voice, but for easy listening songs. It was yeah, very the show strange. Yeah, must go on. He, like, he could have been a rock god and said he did this weird little kitschy shit. Yeah, it was very strange, but I like his uniqueness. He was very strange and interesting and a great dancer. And he kind of danced like a Muppet. So I kind of felt like he was a good fit for the show. Um, and he interacted with the Muppets very well, very comfortable with them. He was a funny kind of his acting was kind of funny and, and wasn't really awkward like some actors who were just singers do on the show. Um, and I feel like he was just a really good fit. And so I think it's, it's a solid, you know, upper middle ground episode for me. Um, yeah, just I, just yeah, he was overall. I think the host can make or break a show. And the backstage story was good enough where it was interesting. There's a new character that's fascinating and how Miss Piggy reacts to that. Um, the only thing I take away from it is that there wasn't at all a lot of the segments were used to um right there were no staples which was one of my big issues yeah they had a lot more of the host than usual which usually we're saying lamenting how little of the host there is but this time there's a lot of leo sayer which he did okay he delivered but yeah there was no staples so that was that was kind of what takes it down for being as good as it could have been this episode. i mean you're absolutely right plus uh good music overall i think if anything the songs were too long and i think that that came from it being leo sayer doing his music so yeah. they did the whole song. You're right, because usually it's like, it's like singers coming on and doing like shows from, or songs from old musicals and that kind of thing. And yeah, they're like one or two minutes and not four minute musical numbers. Like they had, once you get three yeah. four minute musical numbers, suddenly you don't have time in the show for anything else. You know, Swedish Chef, no news segment, no uh, veterinarian's hospital, nothing. Like there's just no pigs in space. Uh, so it, yeah, so I think that that one of my issues just it didn't have any of the staples we're used to. Um, Right. Strong backstage plot with Piggy and Annie Su- and, and Annie Sue that I, I didn't have really have an issue with. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it just I don't know. It just sort of sat in a weird place for me. And I'm not sure why. I think you kind of explained it because it just didn't feel like there was enough. It was some, maybe too Leo Sayer focused. And I think we would both would have been more upset about that if he sucked as a host. But he was pretty it's true. If he was terrible. Yeah. This would have been a real bad. <laughs> if it was like just Chris Christopherson for like five, four minute numbers, we'd be like, Jesus Christ, this episode's terrible. But I think he, he held up his part of the show pretty well and incorporated the Muppets well into his own songs. Um, so that's what saved it for me. And I thought it actually came out pretty strong in the end. Uh, but it could have been even better if they somehow mixed that in with some Muppet staples. I don't know. So no, yeah. So I'd say middle somewhere. Yeah. One of the better musical episodes, even and, though he was, I said, he kind of a waste. Like, God, he could have been a rock legend. Oh my God. Can you imagine him in that? Uh, I believe in a thing called love that band, like uh, the darkness, the darkness. <laughs> like he has that high pitched, like yell voice. Like he's great at that. Um, and they're always little skinny guys in those bands. And that's what he that's is. Right. Too. Skinnier, the better, like little gangly dancey guys with big hair. Basically, that's what it is. So, yeah, uh, well, let's talk. Let's talk a little bit more about the music this week. Sure. Uh, you make me feel like dancing. This is from Leo Sayer's 1976 album, Endless Flight. This hit number one on the U.S. charts and won a Grammy Award. And this wow. was his first number one in the U.S. Gotcha. Uh, fun little factoid about this. Uh, years later, I think it came out that Ray Parker Jr. said that he wrote the song but gave it away as a demo. And he is better known for doing the theme to Ghostbusters. But he wrote that song. I feel like dancing supposedly yeah wow yeah i only know him from ghostbusters that's about it 
Carbon Paper, written by Abe Burroughs, composer and songwriter who's been responsible for a few other Muppet Show songs, a Gypsy's, a Gypsy's Violin, and uh, one of my favorite Gonzo performances ever, Memory Lane. Uh, but he's also responsible partly for musicals like How to Succeed in Business and Guys and Dolls. Oh, nice. Wow. The show must go on. This is one of Leo's earlier hits. The mime bit that he does in it that was sort of weird is actually a reference to how he used to perform where he did the song in like sad clown paint. Huh. I mean, I look it up on YouTube. It's him in sad clown paint in front of a guy with a banjo. Well, I really I enjoyed the number because it was also surprising. I'm like, oh, that was a very seamless split screen effect. Like, I didn't see that coming because he was on the screen the same time with him as a mime. It was kind of impressive, actually, for that time period. Uh, uh, she was one of the early birds, which Gonza performed uh, by T.W. Connor, an English music hall songwriter. Mm. That's really all I could get. <laughs> uh, when I Need You, while not a Leo Sayer original, he's the one who really made it famous. It was written by Albert Hammond, uh, who also wrote popular songs for a laundry list of people, gotcha. including Celine Dion, Whitney Houston, Starship, Diana Ross, Tina Turner, Chicago, Ace of Bass, and like another 50. Jesus. Like hit song <laughs> hit bands that I didn't name. That is crazy. The list was insane. Wow. Well, he wrote that song for Leo Sayer. <laughs> kind of crazy. What did you think the best Muppeteering moment was this week? Um, There wasn't like a, a lot of, in my opinion, a huge, impressive Muppeting moments. Um, some impressive stuff. Like I love the, the flower scene, the way they did that, the people being blown away by the sneezes and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I'm always just so impressed by the people in the full costumes doing incredible dance numbers. And they did the, the bird dancers. Yeah. The opening number was so great with just the dancers all synchronizing and doing so well and keeping up with Leo Sayer, who was an insane dancer himself. Um, so yeah, that was probably the most impressive one for me. Uh, I'm going to go with the woodland creatures. Uh, yeah. In, in when I need you just because it was such a somber and sad song and Leo didn't do anything besides like be on a tree. So they just had a lot of humor that they needed to carry. And I thought they did it well. That's true. Yeah, that was a good one. That's fair. So Jarman, what happened this week on Star Trek, the original series? We have the episode Patterns of Force, and I think everyone in the um, Star Trek fan community, you can just say the Nazi episode. And they're like, oh, yeah, OK. <laughs> mm-hmm. And strangely enough, there's a Nazi episode of Enterprise as well. So we'll get to that Whoa. one in about 10 years when we get to that episode. Something like that. Yeah. So we have the Enterprise arriving at the planet Ecos to investigate the disappearance of a Federation cultural observer called John Gill, who was once one of Kirk's history professors back at the Academy. And once they arrive, they are promptly attacked by a rocket in the Enterprise that they discover is a nuclear warhead, which is before their time, but way after the time of Ecos and their neighboring planet Xeon. They shouldn't have that technology. So they easily, you know, dispose of the, the rocket, but they're like, whoa, that's weird. It shouldn't be there. So eventually they conclude through conversation this must mean John Gill, this cultural observer, has violated the prime directive and contaminated their culture and has blasted them way ahead with their technology. So they're befuddled because John Gill was very ethical, a good guy. He was a great professor. So Spock and Kirk, they beam down to investigate and Kirk hopes to meet with Gill and figure out what's going on. But before they beam down, Bone gives them, Bones gives them this transponders under their skin in case they can't get in touch with them so they can still locate them and beam them back if they need to, which I thought to myself, why don't they do that all the time? They should just always have those <laughs> at all times. But anyways, when they arrive, they witness a Xeon man uh, from the neighboring planet on, on a Ecos, 
being arrested savagely by two men in brown shirt Nazi uniforms. And, you know, Kirk asks Spock, do you recognize that? And Spock's like, yeah, that's 20th century Nazi uniforms from Earth. And just then, after the guy gets captured, a Nazi uh, newsreel starts to play outside in the streets on a screen. And it shows a woman called Doris who's getting awarded by, by the Nazis for her commendable behavior. And this is important later. The newsreel continues to say that the final solution against the Zeons will happen soon. And all the people give the Nazi salute and they pan over to who they're giving salute to. And it's none other than John Gill. And they're like, what in the world? He's like, they're Fuhrer. This is crazy. So Spock and Kirk uh, knock out a couple of Nazis and steal their uniforms. And they hope to infiltrate Nazi headquarters and find Gill. But they are caught when an officer makes Spock take off his helmet and his ears are revealed. Oh, no. It's always the challenge of covering Spock's ears in these time travel type of things. Uh, They're taken to jail and tortured for answers as to why they are there and what their plans are. But the Nazi party chairman, Eneg, uh, comes in and orders them to stop torturing them and holds them for a while. And then he'll question them later. And he's important later as well. So while in holding, they run into uh, the Zeon that was arrested earlier. And his name is Isaac, and they start talking to him in his nearby cell. And Spock and Kirk find a way to escape the cell by taking the transponders out of their skin and using a nearby light bulb to create a laser to break open the door, which is some real MacGyver stuff they jump into here. And they go to another room with with Isaac, and they grab their communicators that were taken from them, and they escape. And they go to Isaac's rebellion hideout, where the rest of the Zeons are. And while they're there, they're suddenly confronted by Doris with some Nazi soldiers, the woman who received the Nazi medal earlier. But it turns out they were just testing the loyalties of Kirk and Spock and that she's really on the side of the Zeons, just undercover. So Spock and Kirk explain who they are. They're from space and that they need to find Gil because he's really one of them and try to figure out what's going on and why he created this Nazi thing going on and why he's going against the Zeons and try to stop him. Uh, So Doris tells them that Gil is making a big speech soon, so they all decide to sneak into the event disguised as a Nazi film crew uh, documenting Doris and her activities. And it's really funny back and forth with the lights and they're they're filming all the different guards and stuff. It's really kind of cute. Um, The speech starts uh, with Gil in some kind of weird booth giving the speech, and it's not accessible to the public. There's guards guarding the booth, and his mouth is covered by a microphone on the video feed, so you can't see his mouth even though he's speaking. And so they beam down Bones to investigate what's going on with Gil, and Bones figures out that Gil must be heavily drugged. So they get past the guards and get into Gil's booth after his speech, and they give him a stimulant and a Vulcan mind probe to wake him up. And meanwhile, the deputy Fuhrer, Melikon, is giving a speech outside to rile up the Ecosians and have them kill all the Zeons in the final solution at their planet. But finally, Gil wakes up, enough to tell them that he tried to do this Nazi stuff because the Ecosian civilization was breaking apart. And from his history, he thought that he could use the Nazi system to bring them together, but make it different because he'd be a benevolent ruler, not like Hitler. But then Melikon, the other guy, took over and kept Gil drugged so that he could do whatever he wanted and kill all the Zeons. So it got screwed up in the end. So they're finally able to get, give, uh, make Gil give a speech to end the killing of the Zeons, but this angers Melikon, and he shoots up the booth and kills Gil, which they really should have predicted that he was going to do that, and Gil is killed. And Isaac, the old guy who was with them in the cell earlier, then shoots and kills Melikon, so now the remaining Zeons and the Ecosians are in theory going to work together to achieve peace, and the Enterprise leaves, and that is Patterns of Force. So, Steve, what did you think of Patterns of Force? 
I mean, this is certainly the zaniest time travel esque. I know there wasn't real time right, travel. Right. Like I get it, but the most time travel esque episode we've had, it was just crazy for them to suddenly be <laughs> in Nazi Germany. Whoa. It was such a nutty uh just, just so crazy. I totally agree with the why don't they just put those things, those trackers in them every time that <laughs> yeah. would have solved so many episodes before now. It really would have. <laughs> um, I I like that we got to see a little bit of implications of, of Spock being a Vulcan in that, like for the first time ever, it mattered that his his skin color was a little bit green. Yeah, because he had his shirt off, and they're like, "Whoa, this guy's not healthier." He's but then it makes strange. sense because Vulcans have green blood, and so instead of being pinkish, they're greenish. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. It's just they never played it out that way before. And even when they're whipping him; he has green blood coming out, which is kind of neat. Um, the metaphor—not say it was heavy, but it—it it knew exactly what it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you know, the Zeons were the Jews. That's just the way that was. Right. And they were, you know, there was no point in trying to hide it or make it a metaphor. It was just Nazis, you know. <laughs> so yeah, that was exactly. a little in your face. weird and felt heavy-handed at times, but at the same time, I'm not sure how they could have done it delicately. <laughs> when it's Nazis. <laughs> when it's Nazis. And there are just swastikas everywhere. Or as Kirk says, Nazis. <laughs> Nazis. He said it very strangely. Uh one of my favorite moments. Between Spock and McCoy, maybe in the entire show so far, happened this season where McCoy gets beamed down, and he's in like a a doctor's a Nazi doctor's uniform, and he's like, "They got the trans the thing wrong. My right boot is too tight," and and Spock, in his very logical way, basically tells him to get the hell over it and put his boot on. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> I suggest you squeeze in your toes and force your foot into it. Because there there are other things to do right now. <laughs> uh, so that was just great to hear Spock in his way say, like, shut the hell up and do it, McCoy. <laughs> I love also there's great Spock moments here. Spock's realizations about gambling. He's like, oh, I see why humans gamble because and then <laughs> and he's like, we may we may make a human of you yet, Spock. And He's like, I hope not. <laughs> Very earnestly. <laughs> so I really think Spock has come into his own at this point in season two, like in N- Nimoy playing Spock, like this character is set now, like it's finally there. I don't know. Uh, the, some things that maybe kind of bug me a little bit. The 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 woman being like a Zeon spy or whatever she was, was just too easy. Mm. And. I think it would have been more impactful if a a Nazi had had a chance to have a personal journey, a change of heart, a change of heart so that they could then be compelled to help these people. But they just, I guess, didn't have time for that. They're like, no, no, no. She's already there. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, it would have been great for a Nazi to go along on this journey of persecution somehow. Yeah, it did make it very easy for them to find a way in then with right, her. Right, just made it really easy and convenient. Um, I think that was probably my biggest complaint. Like, that just felt lazy in what was overall a very involved episode. And I think very fun episode. It moved pretty fast, and it went too long. I was very interested, and it was funny, and it was interesting. Um, and I think it was cool for Kirk, who has always been very cavalier about the non-interference directive, the prime directive. But... With this speech from Gil, maybe he'll take it a little more seriously going forward, you know, because this is kind of his changing moment for that. That and the yeah, and the Gil thing felt foolish. 
Which oh, like the, like I'm gonna do Nazis, but I'm gonna do them right. I'm gonna do good Nazis. I'm gonna do good Nazis. I'm like, come on, <laughs> it doesn't work that way. What a bad premise. Yeah, so that that is rough. But it, I think a solid episode, good middle. I episode. think it could have easily been like his history teacher was taken captive and had a history book on him, and some guy found it and used the model to like it could have just as well, easily that's what they did for the the, uh, the, the mob episode, the monster one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're absolutely right. <laughs> um, so maybe that's why they couldn't do it this time. They're like, ah, we can't do the book thing again. Exactly. Um, but it just felt real weird for like a history teacher who knows how it turned out and clearly studied this to be like, no, I can do Nazis good. <laughs> It'll work. It'll be fine. It'll work. I swear. Um, so that felt a little bit goofy. But overall, one of the better Star Trek episodes. Yeah. Good character moments and good. It just moved along. It was great. So, Jarman, we got any fun factoids for this episode besides Nazis? <laughs> we sure do, but it's more Nazi shit. Uh, so due to the post-war German ban on Nazi-related Im- imagery and paraphernalia, this was the only Star Trek episode that was not shown on German TV until the mid-90s, when these restrictions were gradually relaxed to allow for artistic expression, which is interesting, but also makes sense. Um, especially in the 60s, it was only like 20 years after that had happened. Um, Leonard Nimoy initially refused to have any publicity pictures taken of him in Nazi uniforms. Um, he was due to attend Hanukkah services later that month. Filming took place in December and did not want any controversies to arise, which makes a lot of sense. Um, and also, uh, Leonard Nimoy is fully Jewish and William Shatner is half Jewish. So it's weird for them to be in this episode doing this stuff. The name of the planet Zion is a variation of the word Zion, a Hebrew term as in Mount Zion near the city of Jerusalem. The name of the Zions, uh, Isaac, David, and Abram, are obvious references to Isaac, David, and Abraham, mm-hmm. uh, traditional Hebrew biblical names. So very heavy-handed with the uh, imagery there. Um, the underground area where the rebellion was being held was the same set that was used for Devil in the Dark with the rock monster. Okay. I can see, I can it see now. that. Yeah, after I read that, I'm like, oh, yeah, I can see that. So, this last one is something interesting. The woman who played Daras, the woman who was actually a sympathizer, who was, you know, being accommodated with the metal and stuff, mm-hmm. her name is uh, Valora Noland. Very cool name, Valora. Um, her costume originally did not have a swastika on it, and it was added right before filming. Uh, the actress, whose parents fled Nazi Germany, was offended by this and stated that she would have not have taken the role if she had known she'd be wearing a swastika. And the actress quit acting entirely after this episode because, I mean, maybe not because of that, but it's just coincidentally, she just never acted again after this. Episode. Uh, I can confirm. I looked up her IMDb when I was trying to find Trek connections and she has like two roles after this. And she had a long sheet, like a long IMDb credit sheet before this. And for whatever reason. Yeah. Yeah. Just never happened again. So those are little factoids for that episode. So, yeah, what, what kind of Trek connections do you got for us this week, Steve? This week was tough, and I only have one. Oh, wow. That is a new yeah, thing for you. it was rough. Uh, <laughs> William Winters, Wintersoul, who played Abram, okay. did additional voices for a movie called I See You, which featured both Sylvester Stallone, who will be guest guesting later this season on The Muppet Show, ah. and also featured Chris Christopherson. <laughs> <laughs> who was just the guest a few episodes ago. That's a pretty solid connection. Episode. Yeah. Well, 
that works. Uh, yeah. but that's the one. That's literally the only one I could find. It was so thin this week. It was crazy. But these episodes are the same episode. So obviously you have some similarities for us. I mean, I've got at least two. <laughs> What's your first one? Uh, in the opening number of The Muppet Show, everyone gets swept up in dancing. Just like in Star Trek, everyone gets swept up in Nazi fascism. <laughs> you know, like you do. Like you do. Uh, Leo Sayer sings a song all about being trapped when he's in that, that mime okay. song, just as Kirk and Spock were trapped in that jail cell. Okay, I could see it. I yeah, yeah, it. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, both contain a powerful figure or faction trying to get rid of someone. Miss Piggy trying to get rid of Annie Sue and the Nazis trying to get rid of the Zeons. <laughs> but it's true. Cat, get the fuck out of here. And meanwhile, Steve's cat's attacking him. <laughs> um, it looks like Miss Piggy is going to be replaced by a younger and more popular pig, just mm-hmm. like Dr. Gill. I don't know if he's a doctor, actually. Just Gill is going to be replaced by a younger and more popular Fuhrer. Okay, I can see that. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> or he's going to replace Nazism with good Nazis. <laughs> yeah, like you do. <laughs> Maybe if he was a doctor, he would have realized Friends, that was a bad idea. <laughs> Transporter malfunction. <laughs> Maybe you're right. So now it's the part of the show where we uh, transport one character from one of the episodes to the other and vice versa. So what do you got for us, Steve? This week, Muppets and Trek, I've got Leo Sayers dressed as a mime coming over to replace all the Nazis. Because <laughs> at least it would lighten it up a little bit if all the Nazis were mimes. <laughs> oh, wow. That's dark, actually. <laughs> a lot of this is kind of dark. Um I have Kermit coming over to replace Isaac, the guy who's in the cell with Kirk and Spock and helps them throughout the episode, because uh, he'd be good as that downtrodden guy that's being attacked and put down by the Nazis, just like Kermit was like, I think he was Bob Cratchit in the Christmas Carol one, right? Uh, yes. And then uh, and then it'd be really chilling to see Kermit saying that line that Isaac says, after seeing what I did, I think I could kill now. Yeah. <laughs> just see your Kermit saying that. After seeing what I've seen, I think I could kill now. Oh, God, Kermit. No, <laughs> it's terrible. They're Nazis, Fozzie. <laughs> I guess you're right. <laughs> I can't do a Fozzie voice suddenly. <laughs> you also did Kermit. I also Two did Kermit. Talking to each other about uh, I guess you're right. No. That's what this show is all about, folks. Just all Kermits talking to each other. <laughs> Kermits talking about Nazis with other Kermits. <laughs> hi, Hitler. Oh, hi, ho. <laughs> oh, hi, Hitler. <laughs> It's terrible. God. Hey, I'm not the one that made a Nazi episode of Star Trek. I'm just here to watch it. That's true. It's all Gene Roddenberry's uh, fault. Trek to Muppets this week. I've got have the Nazis come over and uh, replace all the woodland creatures in the final thing. So Leo Sayers trying to hide from the Nazis in the tree and they're trying to cut it down and get him out of it. Yeah. And it ends with them blowing it up. So it's just perfect. Yeah, that works. Um, I have Spock to be transported over to take over as Leo Sayer. Uh, because he'd sing all the songs in Leonard Nimoy's deep baritone. (laughs) And I have a couple of Leonard Nimoy's albums and they're pretty bad. So it would be great. If I had a hammer, I'd hammer in the evening morning. I'd hammer in the morning. Oh man. It's so good. I feel like dancing (laughs) and he'd dance really robotically. (laughs) So yeah, that'd be it. Oh man. So that brings us to the end of episode 51 of the Muppet Trek podcast. Join us next week for the Muppet show with special guest Roy Clark. And original series episode by any other name. So from the lovers, the dreamers, and us. Live long and prosper, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Muppet Trek Podcast. 
Be sure to follow us on social media on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. This podcast has been brought to you by A Play on Nerds. Thank you.